HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine and co-founder of ChefSteps.com. We've just launched a free course on spherification that's quick and to the point. It teaches the fundamentals and then reveals the details the best chefs use to create amazing dishes that border on culinary alchemy. Sign up now at ChefSteps.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Issues coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 1. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. All your questions, cooking, tech cooking, non-cooking, questions about Nastasha maybe. Who knows? <laughs> All welcome. Uh, joined in the studio as usual with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and... Joe is all alone in the booth today. Jack? So lonely. Jack just got back from Bonnaroo, so he's uh, taking it easy. I'm sure he has a lot to recover from. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll hear from it maybe next week. Maybe, maybe Jack will call in if he's listening. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what are the odds? <laughs> uh, okay, got some questions. Oh, 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 by the way, amazing stuff. Before we get into the questions, the Museum of Food and Drink, MOFAD, uh, did its inaugural explosion of the Puffing Gun on Sunday. Uh, we did a test uh, puff because uh, our uh, graphics team, Labor, uh, Ryan and uh, Wyeth, amazing fellows, are filming a Kickstarter campaign for us because we are going to kickstart the, uh, this late summer's exhibit of the Puffing Gun. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, uh, back in the day, uh, starting in the, I guess, just around the turn of uh, the last century, 
around 1900, uh, they uh, developed a technique for puffing grains where you seal the grain in a, in a sealed kind of gun uh, and you uh, heat it and, and as you heat it in a sealed container, the pressure increases dramatically but the, gr- the liquid can't boil off because it's sealed inside of a container like, like a pressure cooker. But instead of going up to 15 PSI like a pressure cooker, it goes up to like 180 PSI, 200 PSI. Then you release the pressure all of a sudden and – Boom! All of the grain uh, instantly puffs as all of the water instantly vaporizes off. And there are various machines that are uh, used for this nowadays that are small, but the museum wanted to get one that was actually used, designed by Kellogg, and is still made by the Puritan Manufacturing Corporation in Omaha, Nebraska. So we got one of these uh, large machines that takes, I think, 18 pounds of grain at a time or 18 or 20 pounds of grain, seven feet long, big machine. Uh, and uh, we fired it for the first time on Sunday and didn't really have an idea kind of a, how uh, kind of much of a poof there was going to be coming out of it. But uh, Nastasha unfortunately had to miss it. But I will just say that uh, everyone involved had chunks of rice stuck in, uh, in their hair. The rice was sprayed all over Heritage uh, – all over the Heritage headquarters, like just everywhere. It was just amazing. I, like let me just say – First of all, you should fund the Kickstarter when it comes up. And second of all, no one is going to be disappointed when they come visit the Puffing Gun in uh, outdoor venues in New York City later this fall, uh, later this uh, summer. It's just, get, it's just a crazy piece of equipment and uh, su- super duper fun. Uh, and uh, we have a picture actually. Follow MoFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Uh, they now have their Twitter up, at MoFAD uh, on Twitter. And you can see a picture of the inaugural Puff. The inaugural puff. It's a pretty amazing picture, right, Stas? It's amazing. I mean, like, you can't believe it. Like, stuff flying everywhere. It's like, uh, it's like you know, Star Wars, like, you know, the Millennium Falcon going into hyperspace. That photo looks kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, questions in. Alvin Schultz writes in. Uh, carbonation question. How do you control the bubble size in different cocktails? Topo Chico versus Champagne. Uh, is it a question of PSI? Topo Chico, by the way, is a Mexican mineral water, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. You drink that stuff in L.A.? No. I was like, hell no. Hell no. Remember, half Mexican, so she's allowed to be racist against her own kind. I guess. I guess. Not really. It's not really cool. Right. Right? All right. So uh, anyway, so I don't really uh, – I've had it, uh, but I don't remember the the bubble kind of uh, quality of uh, Topo Chico. Champagne is known obviously for uh, – you know, f- the finer the champagne, the smaller the bubble size. However, uh, it's fairly simple in this respect. The bubble size of any given drink – uh, is directly related to the pressure of CO2 that you put into it and the temperature at which you serve it. So uh, basically how fast CO2 is leaving. So the more pressure you carbonate to, the bigger the bubbles are going to be for a given liquid. Uh, the, the colder you serve it, or the warmer you serve it rather, the larger the bubbles are going to be uh, for a given liquid because CO2 is going to be leaving it faster. Okay, so if you want smaller bubbles, you carbonate to a lower PSI. Downside is it also doesn't taste as carbonated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, and if you want larger bubbles, just carbonate to a higher PSI. Downside, sometimes you can get overcarbonated. Now, uh, now remember I said for a particular liquid. So uh, 
whatever the alcohol content is is going to increase uh, – is going to affect both the bubble size and how carbonated it tastes. The higher the alcohol content for a given pressure, the less carbonated it's going to taste and the smaller the uh, bubbles are going to be. Um, for also what is in the drink besides alcohol can vastly affect uh, the bubble size. So in champagne uh, that's actually done method champenoise, uh, the product sits during a secondary fermentation on its lees and those uh, – the yeast products break down over time and create – uh, uh, the the liquid actually becomes uh, such that the bubbles are smaller. So the bubble size will be smaller for uh, champagne that is aged versus champagne that is unaged, and definitely champagne. So the longer you age it, the, the smaller the bubbles are going to be. Also, they are smaller than if you were to take a base wine that hadn't been refermented and and carbonated. So it's what's in the product is going to determine the bubble size, uh, how cold it is, and the pressure. Yeah, good, good. All right. Uh, Dave Kleiman writes in, uh, back on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Dave. Question for the show over here. Uh, homemade jalapeno cheddar Doritos. I have Enzorbit M, whey, and uh, cheddar powder. And also he wants to know uh, the best uh, uh, breakfast in Williamsburg or Manhattan. I don't eat breakfast out. So what, what about Manhattan? Do you ever eat breakfast out? Not really, no. No? I really don't like it. No? Mm-mm. Joe, you eat breakfast out? No, he's gone. Sorry, no, I'm here. No I generally do not. Yeah? I, Roberta's is supposed to have a nice brunch, right? What about brunch, Dust? You got a good brunch? No. I eat at home for the first yeah. meal. You know what? Let me tell you what. If you're in uh, Manhattan and uh, it's not a sit-down thing. I mean, Barney Greengrass Sturgeon King. You ever been there, Stas? Mm-hmm. It's upper Manhattan. Barney Greengrass Sturgeon King, that's like old school New York. And, you know, you get their omelet with the fish in it. But just go to Russ and Daughters and get, like, some amazing lox, some bagels. Get their amazing cream cheese. Go out. Have a picnic. It's nice out. I mean, Roberta's, I haven't really, have, I don't think I've been here for, for brunch, but they're supposedly they have a good brunch, right? Yeah. Who else? Can you think of anyone? Uh, no. I just don't eat out. I really, yeah. I don't eat I don't out need for the morning. Out. You don't eat it at all? I mean, unless I have, you have to. You have with a disgusting friends. look on your face. Because usually friends choose, like, those brunch places that are just bad and expensive. That's your favorite combination, bad and expensive, <laughs> right? Also, there's hardly ever reservations, so you're waiting yeah. forever. Yeah. And you could already be eating. Yeah. And you're and, starving because yeah. it's first thing in the morning. Yeah, yeah and you're starving. And, like, if you're going to go out, you want that mimosa, but no one else at the table is drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you don't want to be the dick because you know they're going to split the check and you don't want to be the dick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you hate that, right, Stas? That. That's the look. I, I, I could sense all of that just from the – you can't see the look on her face, but I could sense all of that. Okay, back to the Doritos. Uh, all right, so here's a trick. Uh, I called uh, Piper on the way in, uh, Piper Christensen, who's our uh, kind of um, – coating snack chips with powders kind of fellow, right? He's our, our guru on that. Uh, he says that Doritos are actually applied not as a powder but as a slurried spray. Like pro- he's not sure whether it's an oil-based slurry or water-based slurry that they then dry out later, but they make a slurry and spray it onto the chips, which is why they get such an even coating over such a fine thing. Piper typically when he's making slurries um, – does about 40% oil by weight with uh, spice mixtures that he's going to put in, but your results may vary. Here's what you definitely don't want to do. You don't want to add ensorbit to that thing. What you want is, in fact, the, in the cheddar powder that you have is a lot of maltodextrin already, which is an anti-caking agent and what's allowed them to spray dry it, and that's going to get in your way uh, too. But here are the basic ingredients for uh, Doritos. Uh, Piper did some uh, research when I was on the train over here. They are uh, cheese powder. They add milk powder and whey uh, proteins because uh, they want to be cheap and don't want to add extra cheese powder. You can just add more cheese powder if, if you want, or if you want it to be more kind of milky, uh, you know, without more cheesy flavor, you can add uh, milk powder and uh, whey protein powder. Okay, uh, whey powder rather. Um, also, tomato powder if you want it red. 
right, and to get that tomato powder. Then they add various pepper powders. You could source all this stuff, by the way, Uh, pepper powder. So you want jalapeno. The problem is I couldn't find – I don't know if they have a source of freeze-dried jalapeno, which you could just pulse. Otherwise, you're going to have to just get – like slice very thin and dry them out and then pulse them and then maybe re-dehydrate them. Or this is why Piper says maybe incorporate them into a slurry or get other forms of powdered uh, peppers, probably both sweet and, uh, and spicy. Uh, and then uh, salt, probably a healthy chunk of salt. And uh, everyone's favorite ingredient, especially uh, Nastasia's MSG. And so then you're going to want to mix all those things together and don't add any extra bulking agent because these things are going to be bulky enough. Now, you could either take the fresh chip uh, as a first thing, like uh, fry it, pull it out, like shake it off a little bit, and then shake it with the powder in a core container. But you're going to get clumps. Piper thinks the clumps are coming probably from the maltodextrin, uh, but it's hard to say. Or you could try spreading them out and then making the oil slurry and spraying it with a sprayer. The trick is you got to get a sprayer that can spray powders. I don't have one, so we don't do that. Piper has tried doing a slurry just with shaking, but it was kind of uneven coverage, so you might have to stay with powders. But stay away from the insorbit because you're not trying to absorb oil off of it. You're trying to spread a, uh, a powder over top of the chip. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. The other John Stewart writes in. <laughs> that's, he, that's, so he, that's what he calls himself. Yeah. The other John Stewart. The other John Stewart doesn't write us. What, well, the, you, know what, you know what? The other John Stewart, you, you are our real John Stewart. The other, like the, what everyone else considers the real John Stewart is the other John Stewart for us, right? Yeah. Right. About rice. Hammer Dave and the boys are just a boy today. Uh, thank you for the popcorn advice the other week. I ended up finding a decent used popcorn machine on Craigslist for 125 bucks. Worked great for family outdoor movie night. Craigslist. Do you, are you a Craigslist shopper? Mm, yeah, I used to be. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But you, mainly for apartments or for stuff? Both. Did you sell stuff on Craigslist? Uh-huh. Do you like those people? Uh-huh. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've never been a big Craigslist guy. I should get into it, though, because I was, I'm a big like auction eBay, guy and yeah. eBay guy. I'm so used to eBay that i got to get used to the Craigslist, the whole kind of like where they don't necessarily call you back. So I was like, that means they already sold it. I'm like, well, why don't they, why don't they take it off the listing? Like, they just don't do that. So I'm not into that. I'm not into that. Nastasha comes from the generation where it's just like, it's well, whatever. It's free flow. Hey, man, maybe they sold it. Maybe they didn't. <laughs> they don't want my money. They don't want my money. You know? Uh-huh. Anyway, whatever. Uh, the question I have for you today is about sticky rice, which I cook pretty regularly and is glorious stuff. I take uh, white glutinous rice, which, by the way, has no gluten, as we all know. Uh, rinse it, soak it for a couple of hours, and steam it. And by the way, that is the traditional technique. You steam sticky rice traditionally. It's not how I cook it anymore, but that's the traditional way. Um, and the pre-soak gets the, kind of the water and get it started, and the steaming, you can steam it through without any sort of agitation, and it doesn't kind of wash the awesomeness off of it, and so it stays sticky and awesome and shiny, and it looks great. Anyway, yeah, it is a really good way to cook. I mean, come on, it's the way to cook sticky rice, let's be honest. Okay, I've wondered if there is some way to do it with brown rice for both the nutty flavor and the purported health benefits. My one experiment in this regard was a miserable failure, mixing white glutinous rice and brown rice, cooking similarly, i.e. soaking and then steaming. It didn't stick, and the brown rice never cooked through. Do you see a way... Thanks, John Stewart. Okay, first of all, uh, you, first of all, if you haven't already tried this, uh, you need to go out. And this is a separate; it has nothing to do with what you just asked. But you need to go out and buy some black sticky rice or Thai black sticky rice or whatever the black glutinous rice. There's a number of different w- things they call it, but it's 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 a long grain sticky rice, so it's already unique there. And they don't mill the outside, so it's got and they and the bran layer is black. And when you cook it, it kind of turns purple, and it's. 
it doesn't stick together. But what's awesome about it is the inside of it has that gooey texture of sticky rice, and the outside still has some like snap from the hull on the outside. And it's typically used uh, for sweet recipes, but I use it all the time, or I used to use it all the time because I just think it's awesome. I love it. Also, if you cook it. Uh, overcook it, dehydrate it, it puffs and leaves kind of a black puff thing with a white thing coming out of the inside and puffs extremely well. So black sticky rice, if you haven't already tried it, uh, you're going to love it. Everyone who tries it loves it. And very few people I know use it for its traditional uh, dessert you know, applications. But like most people I know just like they just end up loving it. Uh, I know I do. Okay. Here's the thing. Uh, my rice cooking has gone way downhill uh, uh, you know, since the past 10 years basically because about 10 years ago I was given the most butt-kicking at the time. I think there's higher levels now. Zojirushi induction neuro-fuzzy uh, rice cooker. And that sucker is so awesome that it can cook fairly good sticky rice just by pushing a button and uh, letting it go. Uh, wait, hold on a second. So wait, wait, wait. John, I'm gonna, I have a caller on the air. I don't want to lose him. I'm going to finish your question. So stay tuned for rice cooking and I think for a traditional steaming solution to your problem. After this caller, caller, you're on the air. Uh, hey, Dave, and uh, Natasha and Joe. This is Sam in Queens. How are you? Doing all right. How's Queens doing? Uh, Queens is great. Um, I have questions about cocktail cherries. Mm-hmm. And I know, you're, I know you're allergic to them, which is a tragedy, but uh, hoping you could help me out. Okay. Uh, so chiefly, I'm concerned with uh, storage and firmness. I've, I've been doing cocktail cherries every year with sour cherries from the green market, and I use a recipe from the New York Times where I heat up maraschino liqueur and add a splash of almond extract and pour it over the pitted cherries in the jars, and I put the jars in the fridge, and two weeks later, they are delicious. Right. Is that Toby's um, recipe, by the way? What's that? Is that Toby's recipe? It very well may be. I don't remember. Okay. It's just in my files. Um, but my first question is, I'm assuming that I need to store it in the fridge, but I've wondered if the sugar in the liqueur or the alcohol level, because it's about 60, 60 or 64 proof, if that inhibits mold formation or other nastiness. I mean, can I store it outside the fridge at, uh, at room temperature? Huh. What's the total weight? I mean, total weight of uh, cherries for weight of alcohol? Um, gosh, it's probably, it's probably, I would say, uh, about a, about a four to, uh, three or four to one ratio with cherries to alcohol. I basically just fill up a, I fill up a, a pint jar of, uh, a pint mason jar with the cherries and then just, uh, cover them with the alcohol. I mean, the question on yeast and mold is strictly comes down to the final proof of the product. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If, you're, if, yeah. you're, if your product is you know, uh, well above uh, 20, 20, 25%, then you're inhibiting acetobacter, you're inhi- in- inhibiting, um, you're inhibiting, I think, most yeasts. I mean, I, this is off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think, although... I'm trying to think of what – there's a bunch of reactions going for like – and they have – how long do they stay firm when you leave them out? Why do you want to leave them out? Just so you don't have room in your fridge? Well, but yeah, basically just to save, yeah, to save fridge space. I mean I, I, they keep more or less indefinitely in the fridge. I have some that are two or three years old that are, that are still fantastic and no signs of mold or anything. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. They haven't killed me yet. I'll tell you this. Uh, my, uh, my stepfather's grandfather in about 1920 uh, put um, cherries in high-proof uh, brandy. Uh, and they aren't stored in the fridge. They're stored in um, they're stored in the in the basement in in, uh, in my stepfather's father's basement. He's now ninety three, ninety four. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in his basement, and they're still good. Do they do, do they can those or those? Nope, are in those a bottle, vacuum sealed or anything. No, nope, just in wow. a bottle, uh, in, you know, in a mason jar. And then they uh, they they pull them out, and there's still three left. Uh, I haven't had one since I was probably. 
you know, 13, 12, 13, it knocked me on my butt. But at the time, it was still, you know, it was still good to go. Uh-huh. Uh, another thing you might want to do if you want to experiment with extremely firm uh, fleshed ones uh, is um, hit them with a little uh, Novo Shape. Uh, soak them for a while in uh, Novo Shape and calcium uh, pr- just prior to the alcohol soak. Uh, and see whether or not they st- – because I haven't, I haven't run the test because you know, I can't eat them. The, the, the old Italian way is that you leave the – you clip the stems but leave the stems, you leave the stems in. And they say that that is what keeps them from going mushy. I don't know if that's true or false. I mean now people do that just so that they have the stem in the cocktail. But I don't know. What's your experience been with that? Are you a stem-on person or a stem-off? I'm usually a stem-off person because I, I, just, I just throw them, you know, throw them in the bottom of a Manhattan and uh, you know, the, the stems get in the way and – I don't want people to choke on them. But, yeah, that was my next question. It was actually going to be about the firmness because, you know, the Luxardo brand cherries are really just kind of meaty. And, you know, the, mine, well, they, they taste great. After two weeks in the, in, the, in the liqueur, they get kind of flabby. And I was just wondering if there was some sort of additive, you know, I could use to preserve the texture. So it's, you called it uh, Novo Chem? Uh, Novo Shape, which is an Novo enzyme Shape. that's being sold by uh, – well, you, you can buy it now at Modern's Pantry. I think they carry it now. Uh, you know, you could test it, but it requires extra calcium to work. And you could also just try adding calcium, and that's going to firm it up too. But the calcium uh, helps the pectins um, uh, crosslink, uh, and when the pectins crosslink, uh, then they, uh, the thing stays firmer; it doesn't break down. Novo Shape is an enzyme that uh, actively crosslinks um, uh, the, the stuff in the presence of calcium, so it just accelerates that. There are uh, it's called uh, pectin. Um, was it pectin methylesterase is the enzyme, and it, uh, it, it there are natural ones in the in the fruit that will continue to work, but you can just you know jack it with that. The one issue with it is that unlike uh, the pectinase enzymes that we use to break down um, fruit pulp, I don't know how Novo Shape responds to alcohol concentration. So I know that I know that the Pectinex Ultra SPL pectinase that I use works fine uh, in liquor. I don't know about Novo Shape. You know, it, it'd be nice to run some experiments. Uh, maybe. You know, I can. I've been so strapped recently that I haven't ha- had the chance. Uh, but the guys at Guzmer might even have like a protocol for it because I'm pretty sure they use stuff like that uh, to do the cherries. And in, in, in absence of that, any sort of added calcium is going to help you. Okay. I think I'll, I think I will, uh, as soon as the, uh, the very brief sour cherry season starts, I'll uh, give it a whack myself and uh, I'll, I'll put the results up on Cocktailians. Thank you. Super. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Oh, he didn't say it was that, Sam. Hey, Sam. Okay. So, uh, John uh, Stewart, back on rice. So here's the daily. Uh, so the rice cooker, first of all, if you don't already own a Zojirushi or equivalent like super rice cooker, they're, they're just freaking they're – just, they're just awesome. But uh, so what it does is it just controls the temperature very accurately. You use a pre-measured amount of water. So unlike steaming where you keep steaming it until it absorbs enough water for it to be perfect, you have to pre-measure the amount of water and they have a line for sticky rice and whatnot. But the good news about these rice cookers is that they can cook mixed rices fairly effectively because they just wait for everything to absorb the proper amount and then they click out. For instance, I today cooked uh, white rice – regular crappy white rice on the brown rice setting of my rice cooker this morning for like an hour and a half and it was a little more blown out than normal but was pretty much fine. So you might be able to get away uh, just using uh, like the semi-brown setting uh, or even maybe the sticky rice setting but I'll try the semi-brown maybe of one of those cookers with a mixed rice and get it. The other thing is is that you're never going to get stickiness out of the brown rice 
right? So you need to have enough sticky rice to in, to have it stick together, even though the brown the brown rice is always going to be inhibiting on your stickiness. It's always going to be ruining. It's always going to be like kind of you know a, a, a fly in your stickiness ointment, so to say, because uh, you know it's not going to provide that stickiness. But the actual accurate answer to do it your traditional way is uh, is pretty simple. And here it is. Ready? Do your uh, do your soak do your soak a doke whatever you're going to do on the sticky rice. I unfortunately don't have times because I didn't I didn't have any sticky rice so I couldn't run a quick test. Um, do your soak, then before you steam the sticky rice, boil the uh, brown rice in copious water, right? Like it's pasta, right? Now you're going to want to boil it for anywhere between ten. And probably 25 minutes depending on how much more steaming time it's going to take in the, with the sticky rice, okay? Then after you parboil the stuff, don't let it cool down. We're not doing a retrograded parboiling thing. Uh, drain it like it's pasta. Stir, mix it in with your sticky rice and steam as, as usual. Now, the, the, the major variable here that's going to, to, to change is how much you pre-boil the brown rice before you start steaming it, I can't say. I would start if if the brown rice the last time you did it was close to being done. I would boil it for maybe eight minutes, ten minutes, somewhere in there. The 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 hard thing is is that brown like rice is going to cook a lot faster in copious boiling water because it can absorb water a lot faster than when you're doing typical absorption methods that don't have uh, a lot of extra water around. You'll know like everyone knows when you cook beans or when you cook rice that the last little bit of uh, cooking is the hard part to get right styles when you're right. making like a, and it's because there's not as much free water around to get back into your product so you know it might it might only take like five minutes of a pre-boil or eight or ten i don't know uh and then mix it in and steam it that should work what do you think good good all right she's like i don't care all right uh you want to go to our first commercial break yes coming back with cooking issues Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine and co-founder of ChefSteps.com. We've just launched our free short course on spherification, a modernist technique that can imbue a flavorful liquid with the appearance of being solid, a culinary illusion that's broken when the spheres burst with flavor as they're eaten. Our free course offers helpful step-by-step demonstrations of reverse, frozen reverse, and direct spherification. We also explore the science behind spherification so that you can go beyond our recipes and create your own to surprise and delight your family and friends. And, as always at Chef Steps, you get the support of a friendly community of experienced cooks and world-class chefs who will answer your questions. If you're interested in learning modernist cooking techniques, if you want more from the creative team behind Modernist Cuisine, and if, like us, you're a fan of Dave Arnold and Cooking Issues, then we think you'll find a lot you'll like. 
Sign up now at chefsteps.com. I like uh, Chris busting out imbue. It's a good word, right? Yeah, it's great. Imbue. Nice. Nice. Go check out Chef Steps, our good friends. Uh, yeah, those, they're, they're good people. They're good people. Known them a long time. Good people. Okay. Oh, by the way, uh, this weekend uh, I went up to Riverside Drive. Uh, I have some friends up there, up in the 150s. You know, you, know, you, ever, you ever been up there, Stas? Yeah. You ever, you ever gone under the, uh, under the George Washington Bridge? There's a little red lighthouse? Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to go there. But as a kid, I didn't, I didn't know any better. I, so I, I went there, and the entire Riverside Park over there is nothing but, but – okay, there are other plants. There's a lot of oaks and stuff like that. But the three things that struck me were so many mulberry trees, all completely in season right now. So many different kinds of shad slash service berry trees, all almost pretty much in season right now, and eight bow loads of poison ivy. Like so much poison ivy, like so much poison ivy. But the good news is that the mulberry trees and uh, the service berries are not in the poison ivy, so you don't need to ruin yourself to, to get these things. But the really sad part about it is, is that I when I was there, I saw no one. No one gathering uh, the mulberries or the service berries, and uh, I, you know, m- you know, me and uh, and my crew, we picked uh, a couple of quarts of mulberries, uh, you know, the the red ones, and made a delicious pie. I made, I cooked myself a pie on, on Father's Day, but, with mulberry pie, but delicious. And then I, no- I started noticing there's so many mulberry trees around uh, New York, and so I've now started sampling them. Uh, and it turns out they're incredibly variable in quality, like um, like astoundingly variable in quality. Like some are almost inedible; they're crap, and some of them are like, amazing. With you know the the thing the thing that makes a really great mulberry is a no kind of like not too musky off flavored. Uh, although I like a little bit of musky mulberry flavor in there, uh, but enough sweetness. And also enough acidity. A lot of like when the mulberries are very ripe, they kind of lack acidity and they're kind of a little flabby and flat. So you have to taste all your mulberry trees around you. And now is the time if you live in New York. We're at the upper bounds of uh, – of, and taste them. So the interesting is that uh, over there, there's uh, – here in the United States, our native mulberry is the red mulberry. Morris rubra, right? Which is can be very delicious. But the problem is, is that they imported these white mulberries, Morris alba. Which, uh, uh, which the, the good news about them is that uh, that's what the silkworms eat when they're doing the silkworm stuff. Um, but uh, silkworm, as, as you can tell, if you've been to the United States, we don't have a giant silk production here, so that whole silkworm thing didn't take off. But these uh, these freaking white mulberry trees. Now I like a white mulberry stars. They're like a little more vegetal. Like they're all right. I mean, like they're no kind of they're no they're no more uh, rubra. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, but uh, the. The problem is, is these these white mulberry freaking things uh, hybridize like lunatics. They're just like they hybridize with our with our native mulberry trees, and they produce all of these like weird crosses. Some of which are delicious, and some of which are bad. Uh, and so you just have to go and and, and also even within just straight up. Uh, you know, red mulberries or white mulberries, the tastes are incredibly different. And then some fool has developed fruitless mulberry trees, which is like I can't even I can't even describe. I can't. You, there are no polite terms to describe kind of what I think because oh, the mulberry tree is so messy. Crap on you for like the two three weeks a year that the mulberries are coming off the tree. It's like it's like the most awesome. First of all, mulberry they're they're beautiful trees, so I can see why you would want one. But if you don't want the fruit, just don't park your car under it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Jerks, jerks. That was your anniversary. Oh yeah, eighteenth year anniversary. Good. I had some leftover pie on that uh, last night. What did I cook? I cooked. I. I what did I cook? 
I cook uh, crab salad. My wife likes crab salad. Like that's one of our big like. She loves uh, pineapple crab salads. I made her pineapple crab salad and some salmon. But uh, uh, Dave, did you know there used to be a mulberry tree on this very block? Did you eat? Did you partake? I in it? used to all of the time until they built the uh, they built a parking lot for the for uh, at the end right next to Roberta's, and this would. You know, I just walk by and you could just, you know, pull down a branch, pull some berries off and uh, be on your way. Sons of bitches. When did they knock it down? It was probably two or three years ago at this point. But Bastards. That's when I first moved in around here. And, and it was a sad day when I noticed it was gone. That sucks. Yeah. Bummer. That sucks. Uh, so, you know, when you're going cap- to get mulberries, just like don't wear clothes that uh, stain. Because the suckers are super fragile and they're going to break. All, yeah, your hands, right? Even if you just get a couple, they're going to stain the hell out of your hands. You're going to look like uh, like a vampire too, like you have blood all over yourself. Oh, I know. Dax, when he was eating all my, his whole face was all like, coated and sprayed in mulberry juice. But wait, hey, it's worth it. You know what I mean? Uh, so, you know, there's a couple on uh, up near. We, we had some yesterday, Stas, right near uh, Cosimono where we went yeah, for lunch. 17th, yeah, yeah they, that, they were really good. The ones by, my, uh, by the parking lot near my house, real spitters. Real spitters, but I wish we still had the one from Roberta. It wasn't. It wasn't a Roberta's person who knocked it down, was it? I don't think so. I think it's for the. There's a parking lot for the Wonton Factory that's also down the street. I think it's uh, has to do with that. Yeah, <gasps> I can't imagine that the uh, Roberta's people would knock down the mulberry. No, tree. that'd be crazy. That would be absolutely antithetical. Yeah, because they could. They could just be making pies left and right. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god! Very anyway. local. You know what the thing is? Like, I'm not like a like a local forager by any means compared to people who actually are local foragers. But I mean, that stuff is delicious and it's right there. It's so depressing to not see people eating it. Yeah, free food, free berries, free food. Right? I mean, you know, like if you like if you live see see the problem is that people aren't used to branching out of their normal what they what they eat. You know, so is like that a tree pun? Oh wow, yeah, I didn't yeah. know. So, so when, like <laughs> when I used to go to Arizona all the time because my in laws lived in Arizona, there's all this free. Free citrus on the street, and no one eats it because it's sour, but it makes great lemonade. They're basically – or marmalade, and yet they're sitting there rotting because no one wants the free fruit. But if Baldar was going to sell you that fruit at you – know, you know, for whatever, then you'd be like, oh, it's great. People are dumb. Yeah. Not you guys. Not, not listeners. <laughs> people. Okay. Tom Fisher on a Kuhn Recon follow-up. It's probably a little strong before. I didn't mean dumb. I just meant they should bring out. Don't worry. Out. Our yeah. listeners love you. Uh, whatever. Okay. Uh, Tom Fisher uh, followed up with his Kuhn Recon. If you remember, Tom was having some trouble with uh, some leaking of steam around the valve on his Kuhn Recon pressure cooker. Uh, and I had a couple other people write in saying that they had had uh, similar problems, that maybe there was a QC issue for a while because mine never did that. Uh, you know, mine never did that. Anyway, so uh, Kuhn Recon wrote him back. Uh, and here's what uh, Jill Stroop from Coon Recon did. Uh, thank you. This is to uh, to Tom. Thank you for providing a, the additional information about where it was leaking and whatnot. It is normal to have a slight hissing coming from your valve. As long as it is coming up to pressure and not leaking any water from the valve, your pressure cooker will work as it should. Please let me know if you have any additional questions. Regard, Jill Stroop. So they're not owning it. Yeah. Not owning it. Not owning it. I'm sorry about that, Tom. Uh, you know, a little bit of steam. Now, remember, we talk about steam coming out of the pressure cooker and the flavor loss in a, in a pressure cooker because of the steam coming out. You got the ones that actually vent steam vent a lot of steam. They're like or the whole time, and you can see steam coming out. And I think that you know, small amounts of steam coming out probably won't have as much effect. But that's probably. Uh, of little solace to you. Okay. Uh, William McGee writes in. Uh, we named an episode after him when he became a member. 
Yeah. Uh, about dehydrators and vacuum machines. I'll do. I'll do it in reverse. I'll do. Man, I'll do it. I recently bought an Excalibur five tray dehydrator and been using it like crazy. Good call. Excalibur is a good dehydrator. Uh, dehydrating things like. Do you, do you like when people say herbs instead of herbs, or do you hate that stuff? I don't like herb. You don't like herb. Mm-hmm. No. No offense, to anyone out there named Herb, because no dude yeah, is named, a guy herb. named Herb. Herb is okay. That herb's okay, yeah. but not herb that you eat. Mm-mm. Okay, so Herb the guy. He's okay. He's okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, tomatoes and bananas. The bananas taste great, but the texture is leathery and it's chewy. I've read that store-bought banana chips are either freeze-dried or fried. Any way to make them crispy without frying? Yeah, freeze-dried. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Anyway. Uh, uh, my other uh, – let's do that first. Okay, here's the problem. Uh, whenever you're drying something uh, in a normal dehydrator, as it, as it dehydrates – the uh, the cells are going to collapse down, and there's really almost nothing you can do about it unless you can either preserve the structure, which is done in freeze drying uh, by freezing and then sublimating the, the liquid out of it, or uh, frying where the uh, water is boiling out of it at, at a kind of a ferocious rate and keeping the structure expanded until it's dry enough to hold its own weight afterwards. So really like th- that's the problem. There, is, you know, there, there are very few things you can do at – at home to mimic that. You can, for instance, par dehydrate bananas and then explosively puff them in the Museum of Food and Drink's puffing gun. There are a bunch of uh, people who have dried uh, fruits and vegetables using explosive puffing techniques. It's a little bit outside the range of what you can do uh, at home. Uh, Another thing that's outside of the range of what you can do at home that does a similar thing is microwave vacuum dehydration. Now, uh, please do not tamper with your microwave in any way uh, it can be very very dangerous that said i've done it and i had very miserable results when i was trying to do vacuum microwave dehydration which shows that like even if you have uh, you know a you know fair amount of uh a willingness to mess around with the, the technical aspects of things it's not exactly uh, simple to do i'll tell you what the main problem with microwave uh, vacuum dehydration is uh, and the principle there is that you uh, put a vacuum on your product and then you put a microwave to boil the water out. But because it's under a vacuum, it doesn't boil at very high temperatures so that the products don't get uh, cooked and the sugars don't caramelize and it keeps its, uh, its you know, it, it works nicely. Uh, uh, now, the problem is, is that if you even slightly overheat a portion of the thing with the microwave and it's under a vacuum, uh, you who uh, can sort of carbonize the outside. Once it goes black, you get huge plasma arcs coming out of it, and so you, it forms almost like a giant light bulb on the inside of your microwave, and it gets awful, burning, terrible smells. And not to mention the fact that you've you know uh, you know you modified your microwave and you know had to hook a vacuum machine up to it. It's just a just a just a nightmare, just a real nightmare, right? So I'd say I'd say I have no good solution for you there. Right? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, now, the other question. I have an opportunity to buy a used VacMaster VP215, the one with the oil-based pump, for a good price. What are the things I need to check out to make sure it's in good working condition? The unit's about a year old and was primarily used in a home. As always, keep up the awesome work, William McGee. Here's what you need to do. Uh, first of all, check to make sure it seals bags. If the Teflon seal uh, bar across it, if the seal bar is kind of burnt, that's not such a big deal because you have to replace the Teflon tape that goes over the seal bar on a relatively regular basis anyway. Um, 
open the machine, run it for uh, like five, ten minutes to heat up the pump and to boil out any uh, contaminants that are in the oil. Then stick a container of ice water uh, into it, close it, and run it. If you can eventually, and when I say eventually, after like you know several minutes, boil the ice water, then your uh, then your pump's probably in pretty good shape. It can boil it off, and then you know you're doing well. Uh, if it can't boil that, see if it can boil uh, like cold tap water. If it can boil cold tap water, also probably doing okay. Make sure the gauges work properly. Uh, other than that, right? I mean, that's those, those are the things I would check right off the bat. I mean, it should sound smooth. Uh, it shouldn't sound like it has any any problems. Uh, other than that, that's those are the main things to check. Also, make sure that the vacuum setting knob that allows you to change how, what the preset vacuum is. Make sure that it works properly because a lot of times the vacuum gauge can go on it. Uh, and by the way, when you're running those tests, you want it at maximum vacuum so you can see what it can do when it's trying to pull all the way down. Uh, you know, make sure that it can actually – that that thing works. A lot of times that goes. Not that that's a big deal. Uh, but check those out and see what's going on, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, we got this one in from Scott at – in Guelph. But although we don't know whether he's at the University of Guelph or not. Okay. We don't know yet. We don't know. Maybe he'll tell Maybe us today. Hey, Hammer. Uh, he wrote two different things, so I'm combining them. Hey, Hammer and the Nails – Jack, Joe, and whoever the heck is working today. Uh, that would make me the nails, which, which I guess sounds like it's cool, except for I'm getting hit over the head with a hammer. Anyway. I've been inadvertently reading a lot lately about coffee. I love espresso as well as a balanced American-style cup of coffee. Uh, and then he says, stop burning your beans, Starbucks. You're yeah, at, I agree, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, I love, now she perks up when someone throws a similar hate down. Yeah. Well, we all know that uh, Nastasha prefers coffee that she gets on the corner out of the person who like lives in that metal box, um, which is no offense to the guy in the metal box. Yeah, but I don't know I just don't don't think he's sourcing you know the highest quality beans or really cares about them that much. No, I mean if the quality if the quality of the coffee mimics the quality of the buttered Kaiser roll, then you know yeah yeah okay Kaiser rolls are so awesome though back you know for I haven't eaten one in many years but I love Kaiser roll you like Kaiser roll. Mm-hmm. The little swirly shape mm-hmm. with the poppies, right? Mm-hmm. You don't like a plain Kaiser roll, right? No. Yeah, okay, good. Finally, we can agree on something. All right. Uh, I got a chance. Oh, sorry. There are a lot of people out there doing a lot of techniques and experimenting with different variables. I got a chance to try cat crap coffee a couple of years ago, and I really like the richness and strength of the coffee without the bitterness or harshness. Uh, what he's referring to here, of course, is Kopi Luwak. And it's not actually a cat. It's, uh, it's called a civet cat. It's a civet it's this little creature. It's also the same creature that they uh, that they uh, in kind of keep in cages in uh, North Africa. I think it's in North Africa, and get musk from that civet that perfume thing. And uh, people are up in arms. I don't really know whether it's good or bad for the animals or if it's painful. I've known nothing about it. But uh, what happens uh, over in Kopi Luwak uh, land, uh, you know, in the Pacific, there is uh, the civet cats run around, eat the choicest, ripest uh, coffee cherries, which, by the way, don't taste good. I've had coffee cherries. They don't taste anything like a cherry. So I thought, I was like, oh, it could be awesome. It's no, 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 don't good. I mean, not terrible, but like, like a papery husk with like a little bit of mucilage. Mm-hmm. Eh, whatever. So they eat the choicest, ripest ones. And the great thing about these uh, civic cat things is they, they, they always go to the same place and they crap in the same place and they crap out a load of beans. And you know they do it pretty quick because you know they're hyped up caffeinated because there's caffeine in those uh, beans as well. And I'm sure that the fruit does a similar thing to you that the, that the brew does. And so I'm sure that the civic cats are like running over there to crap out their little pile of beans. And uh, you, the, they've been uh, kind of de-hulled at that point and their intestinal system. System, which is somewhat short, uh, does some work on the outside of it and supposedly makes these beans awesome, right? So that's right. the theory of the cat crab coffee. 
Cat Crap Coffee sounds like uh, Cat Scratch Fever, like the Nugent. That's Ted Nugent, right? I think so. Right, Joe? That's Ted Nugent, right? Cat Scratch Fever? Definitely. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, so here's my rundown to try and recreate the Cat Crap with non-excreted coffee beans. First of all, uh, and this is just Scott letting, letting you listeners know his technique, which I have never tried before, so maybe we'll try it. Maybe one of you guys will try it. Here's my rundown to create this with non-excreted beans. First of all, you need a funnel and a coffee filter. The key is to hydrate the grounds first. You boil a kettle of water and then pour the freshly boiled water on the grounds a little bit. Uh, like the ISI method uh, you developed, that I developed for infusion. Uh, this allows the liquid to get intimate with the grounds and start the process of dissolving all the coffee goodness. After about five minutes, uh, the kettle is cooled to the ideal temperature for coffee extraction. Slowly, pu- slowly pour the water over the grounds, keeping the grounds swirling around for a maximum extraction rate. I use three tablespoons of coffee for a regular 12-ounce coffee cup. The whole extraction takes between 30 seconds and one minute. This is enough to get all the richness and flavor out of the coffee, but not long enough to get the acidity and the tannins. The result is a very rich brew without the harshness. It even tastes good when it has gone cold. I know you love the espresso, but this is a brew that is impressive, even if it lacks the slap-in-the-face beauty of espresso. So uh, someone give that a try. See what you like it. Interesting. I haven't tried. I have not tried that. I do not know. I have not tried it. Now, on the topic of sugar, I've been teaching my hospitality students. Hospitality. Uh, I've teaching my hospitality students how to make hard candy stained glass sculptures. We've been assembling the structures with hot glue or molten sugar. Uh, although, you know, isomalt is much easier, as you know, because you're about to talk to me about my isomalt. Because isomalt is non-hygroscopic, so it doesn't suck up, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't suck up moisture from the atmosphere as readily as sugar does. And it also uh, doesn't brown as much when you boil it and you can re- you, when you heat it and you can reheat it and remelt it a couple of times without it getting all brown and breaking down the way sucrose does. Anyway. It occurred to me that a hot glue gun might be loaded with sugar to melt it without caramelizing it. We use a mix of granulated sugar and straight vinegar brought up to 310. The straight uh, vinegar there, for those of you that don't don't do sugar work, is there to um, invert a portion of the sugar uh, because the acid at high temperature hydrolyzes sugar, breaks the sucrose into fructose and glucose. That's invert. And the invert is there to prevent recrystallization of the sugar as it cools. You got to get the amount right. Otherwise, otherwise it's too soft. Anyway, whatever. Uh, and straight uh, vinegar brought to 310 to get crystal clear sugar glass without recrystallization. Since you have experience with 3D printing food, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about 3D printing sugar rather than chocolate or masa paste. Can you imagine chowing down on a Nastasha-shaped jawbreaker or, or just breaking it? Just breaking it. Uh, so uh, here's the thing. There are – there's a, a – a, I think it's – I forget the name of the website because uh, I forgot to look it up. But Evil Mad Scientist, I think, or the Rep Rap guys, and they uh, did a extruded sugar. And so what – they extruded sugar, I believe, either into more sugar or into cornstarch and made a giant wood screw out of uh, sugar. So yes, sugar, molten sugar has been 3D printed for a long time and there are tons of uh, pastry arts people out there who load isomalt sticks. They don't use sugar sticks. They use isomalt sticks uh, into hot glue guns uh, and then use the isomalt sticks as hot glue uh there's in fact a company called i think get sassy sassy shot is the name of their uh thing that sells some, a tailor-made item for this i would use the low temperature uh glue guns and realize that uh you will probably burn yourself i'm gonna say this again you're gonna burn yourself uh and then as a secondary thing you might want to know that you're gonna burn yourself also the auto feed things don't work so you're gonna have to use a chopstick or a stick to push the isomalt through the uh, glue gun Duh, do not use one that was already used on glue get a fresh one and also i believe use the low temperature the low wattage ones because i've heard that the other ones the sugar just melts out into nothingness and sprays all over and does what does burns. yeah burns you <laughs> uh, so anyway so yes that's possible um now um 
Second, I'm just wondering, Dave, there's a whole bunch of info on sucrose syrup water concentrations versus boiling temperature. Do you have any info on boiling other sugars or sugar alcohols? What is the temperature versus concentration uh, curve for fructose or dextrose or xylitol? Do any of the sugars have interesting properties other than isomalt? Scott, well, uh, yeah, the book you want to look at that has a lot of those charts is uh, Alternative Sweeteners, edited by Lynn O'Brien uh, Neighbors. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of it's available on uh, Google Books or, and on Amazon to sift through, including some of the charts for things uh, like isomalt and xylitol to get their um, their sugar versus concentration curves, uh, temperature versus concentration curves, and, and how soluble they are. In other words, how high a solids you can get out of it. Um, and other properties, obviously, uh, xylitol is cooling. Uh, I'm, I've been interested in a while, although I haven't played with it, with isomaltulose, which is a uh, sucrose derivative. And uh, the cool thing about that is it's it's about 50% as sweet as sugar. It is caloric, meaning you 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 actually process it in your gut, which means it doesn't set your butt on spray if you eat too much of it, which I've never actually had with isomalt. People say if you eat too much isomalt, it causes it, it causes uh, multiple trips to the bathroom. Let's put it that way. Uh, but um, apparently um, isomaltulose does not, uh, and it's absorbed slower, which I guess some people think is good. But I do not – I also think what's interesting is I don't believe it is extremely fermentable by yeast. In other words, you might be able to use it to back sweeten beers uh, after fermentation and then not have them get further fermented by the yeast, although I'm not sure. I haven't checked up uh, very much, so I'm not sure. But look into that. Okay. Uh, very quickly, Mike writes in about bones. Hey, it's grilling season, so I have a question. Many people write about how cooking meat on the bones leads to a more flavorful finished product. Is there any reason to believe this? Uh, I get that bones are inherently flavorful, which is why we use them for making stock, but I don't see how a bone can transfer flavor in a grilling environment. Thanks, Mike. I agree with you. I don't think it does. What happens with a bone, uh, I mean, when you're using a stock, you're using it for gelatin extraction and for the meat that's stuck to it. Uh, but when you're doing it in a... Um when you're doing it in a grilling environment, really it's there as a heat uh, – it modulates the heat so that you don't uh, overcook it. Some people like gnawing on the bones and so there's that, but I, I don't really think it's adding uh, much uh, flavor uh, to it, right? Matt, what do you think, Stas? Right. Yeah? All right. Uh, Okay, so it looks again. Do we have any time? Or are we, or are no, we... I think we're good. Oh, well, you can go on a quick, quick. Nothing's ever quick. I know. Nothing's ever quick. All right, I was going to go on to a quick rant about uh, Clostridium uh, perfringens and Rachel Dutton, the, micro, uh, the microbiologist from uh, Harvard, and Harold McGee, who sent me the greatest scientific paper I have ever read about salt-risen bread and uh, Clostridium in the salt-risen bread and about this awesome uh, cassava product from, uh, you know, from Cameroon uh, and Africa that I've eaten and how they all link together and how this links in with gas gra- uh, gangrene and uh, wound uh, victims in World War I, but I guess there's no time. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>